Well, we're back in Luke's Gospel this week, and I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to the end of Luke chapter 9, Luke 9, 46. And we've been following Jesus and the band of His closest disciples uh, around Galilee throughout uh, the text, coming up into chapter 9, and most recently, they have been north of Galilee, uh, up above the Sea of Galilee in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has taken His twelve apostles up there. He's taken them away from the, the crush of the crowds, away from the, the frenzy and the hurry of ministry responsibilities and demands, taking them away from all the controversy that comes and follows his ministry as the scribes and Pharisees and all the rest hound him. He takes them away up there in Caesarea Philippi to reveal some things to them, to teach them, uh, to instruct them. And on this brief northern jaunt, they have confirmed Jesus' identity as the Christ as Jesus drew that confession out of them. They've heard Jesus reveal the future, His own rejection, death, and resurrection, which will be accomplished at Jerusalem. They've heard the nature of discipleship, all about self-denial, cross-bearing, following Christ in obedience, Some of them have even seen Jesus' true glory revealed. All of them have learned some valuable, valuable lessons in faith. And it's especially that virtue of faith that they will need to cling to most closely. Exercise most diligently and fervently as Jesus sets His face toward Jerusalem and comes to His appointment with the cross. When we were last in the text in Luke 9, 43-45, though we didn't mention it, Jesus and His disciples were actually on the return trip from Caesarea Philippi. That whole account takes place on the move, on the journey. Luke doesn't provide any geographical markers, but we do know by comparing with the other Gospels that from the middle of verse 43 through verse 45, That short section is en route to Galilee. They're heading back to Galilee, back to Capernaum. And by verse 45, they had not arrived yet. But in verse 46, they've come back to Capernaum. That's been their ministry headquarters during their whole ministry throughout the region of Galilee. That's been their headquarters. And in the scene before us today, Jesus is gathered here with His disciples, with the apostles, the twelve, And they're in a home, probably Peter's home, according to Matthew 8.14. It was a home that was large enough to host all the apostles, their families, family members, that kind of thing as well. So our text for this morning is Luke 9.46-48, but I'd like to begin reading at the middle of verse 43 and read through verse 50. And that way we'll read it the way Luke meant us to read it so that we can hear and see two lessons in humility that really do go together. So starting in the middle of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask Him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child 
and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow along with us. Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. What stands out in this short reading, these verses here, is the contradiction between Jesus' humility and the disciples' pride. At the start, Jesus is talking there about self-sacrifice. Significant self-sacrifice. Ultimate self-sacrifice, like death on the cross for their sins. But that's immediately followed by the disciples engaged in an argument that's really driven by their own self-centeredness. They're going back and forth about who is the greatest. On the one hand, Jesus is modeling complete self-denial. The kind of self-denial that He called them to in Luke 9.23. It's the mark of discipleship. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. He is not commanding them as disciples to do anything that He's not going to do. He's charting the course for them. He's taking the lead in self-denying humility. He shows the way. He sets the example. And just by His example, It creates a command and a mandate for us. But the disciples, they're stuck. They're stuck in self-focus. When someone is focused on self, that is the very definition of narrow-mindedness and small-mindedness. It's like a city with walls and gates. And the walls are erected around the mind and bars are on the gate of the mind and all of it erected and sealed and guarded by self-interested pride. So when Jesus says in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears, when you consider this frame of mind that they're in, is it any wonder that the disciples are not getting the message as it says in verse 45? That they're not understanding. Why? Because the walls are up. Self-centeredness dulled their spiritual perception. Pride made them even reluctant to ask for clarification, for help. This is what Luke wants us to see. The blinding, crippling effect of pride. Pride is one of those sins that the stronger it is in a person, the more blinding it is. That's what we're going to see today. How subtle and insidious and yet how divisive and absolutely destructive the sin of pride is. But the good news is we're also going to get the antidote here. In His mercy and His grace, Jesus does not leave His children trapped in the bondage of pride. He opens the door to the cell lets us out. And the key that turns the lock on our cell is humility. Greatness, true greatness, is really the antidote 
to our pride. And you say, greatness, not humility. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, humility as an antidote to pride seems more logical than greatness. Isn't greatness the issue that pride strives for? Well, to be accurate, humility is a virtue. Pride is the corresponding vice. But it does no good to tell a proud person to overcome your pride. You need to be more humble. Because you know how the proud person responds? You guessed it. Hey, I am humble. I'm really humble. Just ask me. As I said, pride's one of those sins that the stronger it is, the more blinding it is, isn't it? Seems like the last person to know about their pride is the one who has it. The pathway from pride to humility isn't a command, be humble. The command is, be great. Be great. And this text shows us what greatness looks like. That in mind, let's get into our outline. You'll find it there in your bulletin. First, let's look at the prideful division. That's the first point, the prideful division. Verse 46 says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The greatest. It's a very clear, concise introduction to Jesus' teaching on humility. And Luke has, by that clear introduction, masterfully summarized the problem and he's indicated its severity. For starters, let's look at how Luke summarized the problem. He says, an argument arose among them. The word argument is the word uh, dialogismos, from which we get the word dialogue. Dialogue. The word has uh, dialogue in the Greek meaning anyway. Dialogismos. It has an internal reference and an external reference. Internally, this word refers to reasoning. What's going on in the mind? The process of reasoning and thinking. That's how the word is actually used in the next verse. Same word, verse 47, when, Jesus, when it says Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. Same word. But those thoughts in the heart, the reasonings of the heart, they wind up coming out, don't they? The reasoning and the thoughts of the heart are they're verbalized. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? The audible, verbal exchange between men of conflicting, beating ideas. Men who reason differently, whose internal thoughts contradict other internal thoughts. The word dialogismos refers to the outward, the external dispute that results. And that's what we're introduced to. This is talking about an argument. And the dispute actually began while they were traveling from Caesarea Philippi in the north down through Bethsaida into Capernaum somewhere along that journey is where this argument was happening. Would it happen after verse 44 when Jesus told them about His impending death? But they had an argument with each other. And it was significant enough that all three Gospel writers record this argument. In fact, the same argument is going to come up later in Luke. So this discussion, this argument, this dispute... It's sourced in pride. It's a stubborn and a chronic condition in these men. As Luke summarizes the problem Jesus is dealing with, he does so in a way, though, that it really hints at the subtlety and the severity of their pride. The translation is, in our Bibles, an argument arose among them. That hints at it. But the verb Luke uses here is one that actually shows movement and motion. Literally, it's an argument came into their midst or entered into their midst. 
kind of like Luke has personified this thing, this argument. It's like a thing. The argument is, is like an evil spirit or something that's entered into their fellowship. That's actually not far from the mark. Pride and demonic activity are connected. Just to illustrate that for you, take your Bible and turn over to the little letter of James. We read from Hebrews, and James follows it. Hebrews, James, right before First and Second Peter there. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. In James 3.13, James enters into this portion asking a rhetorical question. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And you know what the proud are thinking, right? In the reasonings of their hearts, they're saying, that's me. Over here, James. Over here. How can, I, how can I be of service with my wisdom and my understanding? James asks the rhetorical question, and then he answers it. He doesn't wait for them. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. By the way, that word, gentleness and the gentleness of wisdom, that's the same word that Jesus uses to describe Himself in Matthew 11.29. Jesus very rarely talks about Himself. Even though the Gospels are all about Jesus. The Epistles, all about explaining Jesus. Pointing to Jesus Christ. But you know, you don't hear Him talking about Himself. You know, I like to think in this way. Right? He, he doesn't. But in Matthew 11.29, when he, say, he says this about Himself, I am gentle and humble in heart. That's how He describes Himself. We see Jesus acting in the gentleness of wisdom a little later in Luke 9, or a little later this morning we'll talk about that. Out of the overflow of His heart, He's going to instruct us on overcoming pride. But look at James 3, 14 and following. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Listen, that is exactly what is happening in the midst of the disciples as this earthly, unspiritual, demonic spirit of pride enters in like a force into their fellowship, disturbing the peace, breaking apart the unity and the harmony and the fellowship and the joy, turning them against each other. If there's any doubt about how that looks, look down at chapter 4 of James, verse 1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Think about this husband with wife. Think about this parents with children. Think about this sibling with sibling. Think about this church member with church member. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Look, 
quarrels, fights, angry thinking, which is the very root of murder itself, all of that is animated by a spirit of pride with self at the center, with me and my needs and my concerns and my wants and my desires and my passions, everything in me, that's what causes all this. It's what leads to disputes and criticism and angry spirits and conflicts. When you see that stuff on the outside, look inside. James says all these things are within you. They are at war within you. Turbulent passions always bubbling up, effervescent, contradictory thoughts, wicked reasonings that that strives, one striving to be greater than the other. That's what's going on in the disciples' hearts. This right here in James chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now turn back to Luke 9.46. The question that they're all thinking about, what was on each man's mind, the question that erupted into a verbal argument is this question, which of us is the greatest? The greatest. Notice they're not asking how to be a great disciple as in a really good one. They want to know which one of them is the greatest disciple. This is a superlative. How am I superlatively better than you? Rarely comes out that unvarnished, right? I mean, usually we try to mask it a little bit. But they want to be the best one, the highest ranking. Acknowledged by everybody. It's the greatest. We Americans think this way, don't we? Culturally, this is in the air that we breathe. Some of you know I'm fond of the sport of rugby. Rugby is, in interna- international rugby is um, something I really enjoy and and have had to treat like a temptation that uh, leads me away uh, from study of the Word, so I have to guard myself against going into sport like that in international rugby. My favorite team, though, is the New Zealand All Blacks. They are number one in the world. For such a diminutive nation to dominate the sport of rugby is a remarkable achievement, and I love that underdog story. We're Americans, right? We love underdogs. One particular uh, player... The All Blacks captain of uh, years ago, a man named Richie McCaw. He retired from the sport in 2015 after helping that team win their second Webb Ellis Cup. That's awarded to a World Cup winning team. As a young man, young Richie McCaw, when it became apparent that he had a measure of talent and a remarkable work ethic driven by, I mean, all these guys down there in New Zealand are farmers. They just got that work ethic of farming and ranching and dairy. This, this, and they're humble people, salt of the earth. That's the way these guys are. In a measure of talent and a strong work ethic and a remarkable character. And so Richie McCaw, he set his sights on becoming not just an all-black, which is the dream of every New Zealand boy growing up. They want to become an all-black. That's their heroes. He wanted to be a G-A-B, a great all-black. That was his goal. Listening to New Zealand rugby commentators and reading the articles, though Richie would never ever claim this for himself, never claim that title, never claim that he had done it. He's a humble man who avoided the spotlight and now he's thrust into it all the time as the captain. But that moniker, Great All Black, was conferred upon him by fellow New Zealanders. I see a contrast 
with the conversation here in America in American football, with discussions about the GOAT. Anybody here? Oh, he's the GOAT. And I'm thinking, that doesn't sound very flattering, actually, to be the GOAT. It's not the animal. It's the acronym. G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. Does this recent Super Bowl finally give quarterback Tom Brady the high and holy honor and accolade of greatest of all time? Let's ask Joe Montana. You hear the contrast, though, between great and greatest? If you think I'm condemning Americans for this attitude, I'm not. Because the Bible condemns us all for thinking like that. It's an attitude that's particularly repugnant, though, among those who are called Christians. And sadly, it happens all the time. When we measure ourselves against one another, vying for prominence or covetous of the status and recognition of another, we fall into the same thing, don't we? Whenever someone thinks to himself or herself, why did that person get recognized and I didn't? I've been doing a lot more. Or why did so-and-so get picked and not me? When people serve, quote-unquote, but the service is really just an opportunity to highlight themselves, to be recognized for achievement, to become prominent. Or when people pull out of service because they're like, you know what, it's really not going to get me anything. I'm really not going to get anywhere. Or when you hear people who are always pointing back to the past about what they did. I gave such and such amount of money. Well, you see that thing over there? I built that. You know. That ministry that's going right now? That started with me. I had that idea. Ugly stuff, isn't it? It's in all of us, isn't it? And notice that's what's happening among the apostles. <laughs> okay. The apostles are the men who founded this institution that we're part of. They are at the foundation level of this institution of which we're all members. The church. If they've got this problem, do we think we don't? We think we are better than they, then we are surely quite blinded by our pride, aren't we? These men are all thinking about their own rank, their own personal prestige and honor, what they're going to get out of it, what they're going to stand to gain when the kingdom comes around. They want to be their own, toot their own horn, blow their own trumpet. They want themselves to be higher than the others. They don't just want to be a great apostle. They want to be the greatest of all time apostle. Notice the severity of their blindness is in this fact. Is it lost on any of us that they're having this argument in the presence of Jesus? Who's Jesus? Very recently, they'd confessed Jesus back in verse 22. They said, He is the Christ of God. I'd want to wager that He's the greatest of all time. This is the Christ. He's the God-man. There is no one like Him. He's called the Son of the Most High. He's the one who would sit on the throne of His father David. He would rule over Israel in an eternal kingdom that has no end by virtue of the fact that He's an eternal person, infinite and holy. He is the Son of God. Only one has that honor. And He did not seek it for Himself. It was given to Him. He was put forward by God. 
And it's in the presence of that Jesus, the one who had just predicted his imminent suffering in verse 45, this is the shocking blindness produced by a spirit of pride. J.C. Ryle said it very well. He said there is something very instructive in this fact. Of all the sins, there is none which we need to watch and pray about more than pride. No sin is so spacious that is unfounded or deceitful. It can wear the clothes of humility itself. It can lurk in the hearts of the ignorant, the ungifted, and the poor, as well as in the minds of the great, the learned, and the rich. It's very true. Pride is a condition that affects us all. It is the original root of the original sin. So pride was lurking in their hearts. And you can see how just in reviewing the text and where we've been, pride was awakened by recent experiences. It was inflamed with their own vanity. Pride worked to magnify their differences. It produced division through self-promotion and totally disrupted any spirit of love and harmony among them. Now, if we engage in a bit of sanctified speculation here, it's educated, but sanctified speculation nonetheless, we can imagine the kind of arguments each man offered in his own claim to be greater than the others. Simon the Zealot, he was a card-carrying member of the conservative right movement in Israel, and he argued this way, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who is politically savvy. Kingdom is, after all, a political movement. It requires uh, equitable legislation, which I can provide and be governed well. So the greatest is going to be the one who provides the strongest defense force for Israel, an iron dome, so to speak, to protect the land. Greatest greatness is found in political wisdom, the power to enforce it. Judas Iscariot speaks up, agrees with Simon the Zealot, and doesn't one better because the power that runs the government is the power that funds the government. Strong military, safe borders, peace for the nation. It's all great, I agree, but who's going to pay the bills? Money makes the world go round. So the greatest in the kingdom is the one who can fund this whole deal, fund the whole project. Fundraising is important. Secure banking, sound financial management, diversified stock portfolio. We've got to be in everything and all over around the world to keep this thing going. It's the one who provides all that. Greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Andrew, Peter's brother, he's always running around making friends, right? He's resourceful in a relational sort of way. He's the one who connects people. He's not into political savvy, power. He's into building friendships and coalitions and partnerships. And so he offers this. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who creates the most connections. Brings us all together. Keeps the kingdom together. Builds relationships among all the different groups of people. That one is the greatest. Bringing these strong wills together, the power that can create that bond is the greatest power. Positive coalition building is greater than brute political force. Philip pipes up. Yeah, it's about relationships, Andrew. But you and I know that the most important relational connection we can make is connecting people to Jesus. So Andrew and Philip agree, and together they come up with another criteria for greatness. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who brings the most people to Jesus. 
most evangelism contacts, most conversions, an increase in the followers of Christ through evangelistic outreach, that is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Nathaniel. He's also known as Bartholomew. If you remember what John records in the first chapter of his gospel, you've probably just read it in your annual Bible reading plan. Nathaniel and Philip were Bible students, sharp guys, keen, discerning, probably came up together in Bible college and seminary. Nathaniel says, oh, a lot of false gospels out there. We've seen our fair share of false messiahs come and go in the land of Israel. You've got to know, if you're going to bring people to Christ, that's all well and good. He who wins souls is wise. I agree with Spurgeon. But you've got to know who the Christ is first. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who knows Scripture, interprets it correctly. The greatest theologian is the greatest in the kingdom. Doubting Thomas chimes in here. I'm with you guys, so as long as you're not some kind of airy-fairy, head-in-the-cloud seminary students, ivory tower, no earthly good because you're so heavenly-minded. Doubting Thomas says the greatest in the kingdom is the one who knows the Bible. Yeah, but isn't going to be fooled. Bible knowledge is useless without practical discernment. Peter, James, and John, what are they doing? They're just smiling. While all this banter is going back and forth, they let it go a little bit. Probably winked at each other from time to time. Because they got an ace in the hole, don't they? A little shared experience called the transfiguration. Made them front runners in the greatest of category. Jesus hadn't allowed them to talk about it, but Peter, you know, he just can't help. I mean, Peter, you know, he's it's going to squeak out. Guys, maybe we're thinking about this greatest of thing in the whole wrong way. The greatest in the kingdom of God has got to be the one who has seen and experienced the glory of the kingdom, don't you think? I mean, is there anyone besides Moses himself who has seen the Shekinah glory of God? Wink, wink. Any of you guys see that? No? Well, until someone stood alongside Moses seeing the glory of God and his Christ, this whole thing is pretty much academic, isn't it? True greatness is glory. James and John. Peter's opened the gate, so they run through it. Thank you off Peter's argument. They're thinking less about Moses and more about Elijah. Like the kind of Elijah that calls down fire, which is what they're going about to do on the Samaritans in verse 54. So here's their claim. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who purges the land of apostasy and supernatural fire. Burn them. Nuke them. Elijah. Greatest in the kingdom is going to be involved in that cleansing, that purifying fire of holiness. While this is going on, James, the son of Alphaeus, known as James the Less or Little James, along with his buddy Judas, the son of James, the other Judas, not the traitor Judas, but this guy called Thaddeus, Lebeus, the guy who's all heart. I don't know if you remember studying that way back when, but these two quiet, mild-mannered guys, they're listening to all this bravado and chest-thumping, and they can't compete with these bombastic, fiery-spirited men. But that doesn't stop their pride, does it? Here's their argument for greatness. And this one's offered in somber, pious tones. Think like medieval monk gets done with his Gregorian chants. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven won't be the political power brokers. You hear the wisdom coming out? Won't be the money men. God doesn't need money. Won't be the worldwide evangelists. Won't be the theologians. 
The greatest isn't found in experiences of glory or coming down in supernatural fire. Oh, the pride of men. Brothers, the greatest in the kingdom must be the most obscure of saints. God will honor the greatest as the one we least expect. The praying grandmother, the poor beggar, all the anonymous servant who stacks the chairs and cleans the toilets. The greatest is the quietest. The one who's passed over and easily ignored, like us. You know, God is going to vindicate that one. Lift him up over all the rest to expected greatness. God will bring the obscure saint out of the shadows and finally recognize the true greatness of the most anonymous pious saint. You say, well, that's a problem among those disciples. But that's prior to Pentecost, right? I mean, these guys are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit like I am. Are things so different now in the church? If we're honest, we've all had one or more of those thoughts in our hearts, right? In fact, some may have had all these thoughts in their heart at one time or another. As one of my professors used to say, it's not a matter of if we have pride. It's a matter of where is it and how much. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and Right out of the gate, he had to confront the heart of the problem. 1 Corinthians 1.10 and following, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, I'm appealing to you and I'm wanting you to remember Jesus Christ as I say this. Jesus Christ, who has very little connection with what I'm about to confront you in. I appeal to you that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or oh, I follow Cephas, or <laughs> I'll do you one better, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And Paul spends the next four chapters confronting Corinthian divisions and exposing and digging out the root of those divisions was the heart of despicable pride. What about preachers, pastors, Christian leaders? Are they immune? You all know the answer to that. Paul acknowledges that in Philippians 1.15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Be the greatest preacher, theologian. Be the most sought after for theological counsel advice. Be the greatest shepherd. Be the greatest counselor, greatest motivator, visionary leader. Come up with all the ideas. Biggest church, most conversions, widest influence, everything going on in the community. Got my brand and my mark everywhere that I'm doing good deeds for everybody. Listen, why do you think all those leadership seminars draw such huge crowds? They're preying upon pastors and church leaders who are filled with envy and petty jealousy and abhorrent pride longing for greatness for themselves or their church or their brand or whatever it is. Listen, a discontent, pride-driven pastor is a curse to a church. That's why you need to pray for your church leaders. Because it's not foreign from any of our hearts, is it? This is why Jesus 
must confront this attitude in his 12 apostles here. Since they're to be the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. How does Jesus correct them? I mean, if it's me, thankfully it's not me, but it's a baseball bat to the forehead because they're so hard-headed, right? How does Jesus do that? Second point in your outline, a gentle correction. He gives them a gentle correction. According to Mark 9.33, Jesus doesn't actually confront that argument until they arrived in Capernaum. He doesn't, he doesn't here confront their sin until they're arrived at the house and settled in the house until He's alone with the twelve. And Mark tells us they had come to Capernaum. When He was in the house, He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Why did Jesus ask the question? Didn't He know? Hadn't He heard it for Himself? No, He heard. Verse 47 says, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. He knew. Jesus knows all people. John 2, 24-25, He knows what's in a man. He's the Word of God incarnate. So whatever is true of Scripture is true of Jesus. It says in Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharp, penetrating, piercing, able to get down to the bottom of any issue, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And verse 13, no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That is describing the Word of God, yes, but it's describing God the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ as well. Jesus' question pricks their conscience. They knew they're wrong. <laughs> their conscience, their consciences here are smiting them. But notice how Jesus confronts it. His confrontation is characterized by such wisdom and gentleness, isn't it? He waits to confront their pride until they're alone. He waits until the argument has died down. He knows the blinding power of pride, how it's strengthened in the heat of the argument when the blood is boiling. He intends to correct them though. He intends to teach them. So He needs them calm. He needs them in a right frame of mind. And even when He begins the confrontation, He's so, so gentle about it. He helps them recall the argument on the way. He raises that issue in their consciences. He, he sees that their consciences are His allies in helping them to overcome stubborn, deep-seated pride. We read earlier from James 3, but you'll notice that I skipped over a couple verses. Verse 17 says that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And that is what we're seeing right here from Jesus. His example teaches us such a magnificent lesson, doesn't it? And again, whatever He does becomes a mandate for us inasmuch as we follow after Him. We can't do the same things He does. We can't die on the cross for sins. But that's been done. His example sets us a pattern. So the disciples here, they're too ashamed to answer Jesus' question, so He provides them with an object lesson. Verse 47, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, knowing their, their thoughts and desires are saturated by pride, their argument is fueled and fed by petty rivalry, selfish ambition. He does something remarkable. He takes a child and he puts him by his side. This is really, really powerful. I can't overstate how powerful this is. He's taken the gentlest, most unassuming creature 
in their day, a, a little child. He sets this little child before these rugged, able-bodied, strong men. Fishermen. Simon the Zealot, he's ready to murder people. I mean, these guys are tough guys. Little child. In so doing, he created a paradigm for all Christian discipleship. This is what it means to be a Christian. Using a little child to make his point. It's as if Jesus has slapped the ground with a daisy and split the earth in two. Why? How? What's the big deal? Because Jesus has confronted the hardest, most stubborn, most deeply embedded sin, which is pride, and He so completely overcomes it, He so utterly destroys it, and He uses the most unassuming, lightly regarded of actions, attention to a child. To understand the significance of this, you need to realize children were not highly regarded in the ancient world the way they are in the modern world. In the ancient world, producing children meant survival. Hopefully if they survived, it meant an increase in one's wealth. That's why families were huge. It led to the temptation of polygamy. Have more wives so I can have more children. So I can spread my resources and build my wealth. But until children reach a productive age, all bets are off. No, no one, there's no guarantees when the infant mortality rate is 30% or higher in the first century. The children, until they could prove themselves, they were a liability. They're another mouth to feed. Now, parents treasured their children, of course. The children in the ancient world were considered insignificant. They had no resources, no strength, no wisdom, no experience, so nothing to offer or contribute. One author gives us a Perspective of a first century rabbinical Judaism says this the nature of the rabbi is not at all childlike. At most, an odd Talmud anecdote might tell of a scholar spending time with a child, but this is regarded as a waste of time. One rabbi said, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble destroy a man. That is not the impression you get from Jesus at all, is it? Jesus loves the little children. And it's His love for the most seemingly insignificant of society that is a mark of real greatness. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. There's no virtue in being a child. Young, small, weak, inexperienced, ignorant, simple, and all the rest of the liabilities of being a child in a harsh world. Something virtuous in that in and of itself. This isn't Jesus looking at the sparkle of innocence in a child's eyes and saying, all my disciples have to be like that. He's not looking in the purity and innocence of a child as if to deny original sin. What's marked here is the virtue that Jesus is demonstrating of Himself. It's the divine virtue of caring for all, even the least of these, when there is nothing to commend them, when there is no profit in it for the self. Jesus' love for the least of these, for the little children, that is the mark of true greatness. That's greatness. Let's look at His love for the child. Translation in verse 47, Jesus took a child, put him by His side, 
If we read that too quickly, we miss the affection that comes across in the original, and especially when we compare the other Gospels. Matthew says Jesus called the little child to himself, Matthew 18.2. So the child is old enough to understand. He's actually comfortable in Jesus' presence and with Jesus' instruction to come to him when he calls. Jesus put the child in the midst of the disciples, right in their midst. child feels secure. Mark also tells us that Jesus put the child in the midst of them and also that He took the child into His arms. Not only is the child um, old enough to understand Jesus' command, but he's young enough to be held by Jesus. We see in that the tenderness of physical contact, close, intimate proximity, the affection in Jesus' touch. Luke brings us into the scene after that. After Jesus has called this little child, and after He's presented the child to His disciples, after He's taken the child into His embrace, and Luke says Jesus, after calling and presenting and embracing the child, He then sets this little child alongside of Himself. The preposition is showing a close intimacy right next to Him. Right at His side. What's this all about? Jesus has shown interest in calling the little child. He's called attention to the insignificant here by putting him in the middle, at the center of the disciples, among them. He's shown affection and intimacy by taking this little child in his embrace. And now he puts this little child in the place of special honor right next to him, at his side, alongside of him. From the perspective of heaven above, from the divine vantage point, in the eyes of God the Almighty. How do human beings rate on the scale of power and might and significance and resourcefulness and everything else? We acknowledge men of strength, amazing achievement, incredible accomplishment, but how does God weigh them? Isaiah 40, 15 and 17. Behold, the nations, that's all the men collectively, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. They're counted as dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are counted as nothing before Him. They're accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. If the nations are weightless on the scales, then from God's perspective, what difference is there between men and boys and women and girls? Whether infants, little children, or full grown, are we not all like little children to Him? amazing wonder here in this text is that Jesus would regard anybody, especially these arrogant, puffed up, self-inflated disciples who do make a contrast with this unassuming child because they are less attractive, not more. The way they view the child is insignificant, meaningless until it grows into a productive age. The way they view themselves, mighty, productive, buying for greatness. The greatest. What a gentle way Jesus has corrected them. What a gentle way He's removing the scales from their eyes to help heal them from their blinding pride. By putting the child next to Him, right by His side, you see that Jesus is identifying with the child. That's greatness. 
It's a greatness greater than any of them could hope for that the Lord of heaven and earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords would call us, would present us before His Father in heaven, would embrace us, would seat us next to Himself in a position of honor. That He'd call us, that He'd put us in the midst of the host of heaven where the angelic realm is looking at what God does with the saints. That He'd embrace us as His own and put us alongside of Himself Isn't that enough, beloved? Writer to the Hebrews portrays Jesus in bringing many sons to glory. Hebrews uh, 2.10 He calls them brothers. Verse 11 He rejoices to teach His brothers about God. Verse 12 And to sing God's praises with His brothers. And then Jesus presents Him to God in verse 13. Hebrews 2.13 saying, Behold, I and the children God has given Me. Same word in Hebrews 2.13, by the way, that Luke uses in Luke 9.47. Paideon. Paideon. So it's, behold, I and the little children that God has given me. Old enough to understand and to heed my call. Small enough to be insignificant on their own. Small enough to hold with affection and tenderness and intimacy. Beloved, that's how Jesus thinks about all of us as little children. We're not to make distinctions among ourselves in that way of who's greater and less. That's why Jesus says, Luke 18, 16, let the little children come to Me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. That's us, folks. All of us. That's the gentle correction illustrated by Jesus showing the highest honor to the most seemingly insignificant person the disciples could possibly imagine a little child. Let's hear how Jesus instructs us. Point three. A simple explanation. Simple explanation. Verse 48, Jesus turns from authoritative example to authoritative teaching. He says to His disciples, whoever receives this child in My name receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives Him who sent Me. You see the connection. Receive the little child, you receive Jesus. Receive Jesus, you receive the Father. Receive Him who sent Jesus. It's interesting, I don't have time to really unpack it, but Him who sent, it indicates purpose in God. By preferring, measuring self by other people, making distinctions, greater, lesser, I'm on the path, you're not on the path, you're, follow me, whatever. All that stuff. It shows, Jesus shows us controverting and contradicting divine purpose. The One who sent me. What makes the child important here? Of himself, nothing really. And that's the point. This little child is a symbol. He's an object lesson. The child represents the lack of power. He represents insignificance. The inability to contribute. Children are consumers when they're young. They're not producers. There's nothing in a little child that provides a benefit to make one man greater than another. The child represents Us, beloved, sinners. Sinners who stand before a holy, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Sinners who can build themselves up, not one iota. Sinners who cannot make themselves acceptable before a holy God. Sinners who have everything to condemn them and nothing to commend them. But God in Christ has reached down to us. Those whom Paul describes as helpless, powerful, sinful, God has reached down in Christ and He has rescued us. 
By grace you've been saved. And then he did more. God raised us up with him and took us higher still. He seated us with him in the heavenly paces in Christ Jesus. We're like that little child. All of us. We're seated and at rest, embraced and at the side of honor with our Savior. Why would God do that? Why would He do that? So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus received a little child. Jesus is great. Is He not? It's the argument Paul made. Philippians 2, 5-11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So, if we will follow Jesus' example, does that not put us on the path to be a great Christian? It does. Jesus shows us how here. He says, whoever receives this child in My name, that is, for My sake, regarding my will, regarding my concerns, my intentions. That's somebody who receives me. Receive the fellow believer, even the one who seems to you to be of the utmost insignificance, simply because that's what Jesus wants. You receive Jesus. If you receive Jesus, you receive the one who sent Him. You're working along in the flow of divine intention put you in direct contact with the living God because whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Why did God, the living God, the great God, send his only son? You know the answer. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No. The world's condemned already if they don't believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. No, but God sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. What's it going to take to receive that little child? It's this little matter of self-perception, right? So easy to comprehend, but so hard to put into practice. End of verse 48. For he who is least among you, who he who is least among you all, is the one who's great. How do you think of yourself? You think of yourself as least among all? Frederick Godet says this, here Jesus lays down as the measure of true greatness, not a tender sympathy for the little, but the feeling of one's own littleness. The child set in the midst is not presented to the disciples as one in whom they are to interest themselves, but as an example of the feeling with which they themselves must be possessed. What's the feeling? Philippians 2.3, in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Mark 9.35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. True greatness is not the one who serves for a time in a lowly place, like doing my time, and then I'll get greatness. Greatness is driven by love. It's driven by the service of love. 
And love is not self-interested. It's interested in the other, in the blessing and the goodness of another. As Ellis put it, greatness is tested by its operation of love toward the most insignificant. Greatness is found among those who identify with the least of these. Those who receive and welcome the least of these. Those who are counted as insignificant. Those who are, by all measure, truly have nothing to offer. But in receiving them, in Christ's name, for His sake, counting ourselves and our interests as nothing, but counting His interests as everything, that demonstrates true greatness in true humility. When we live that way, beloved, we see petty rivalries vanish. Contentious spirits depart from our midst. We see loving, joyful harmony, cheerfulness, service, everybody's needs met. At the end of verse 48, notice Jesus does not say, he who is least among you all is the greatest. He doesn't make a comparative. He transcends that. He rises above to say, he who is least among you all is great. Great. There is no greater. There is only great or not great. If we'll make it our ambition to be like Him, never regarding ourselves, but becoming servant of all, loving them all, beloved, that is true greatness. That's the antidote to, to pride. So let us excel in that. Amen? Let's do that together. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank You for teaching us about how to overcome pride, which is a stubborn sin in every single one of us. We all acknowledge it. We're all condemned and guilty before you. You see all. You know our hearts. You know our thoughts and intentions and motivations. And you know that many times, most of the time, we could probably say they're not pure. Even our best intentions and services can be mixed with impurity and, and, and bad and sinful motives. And we just we want to push those things away and ignore that they're there, but they are there and you see them all. Now you've given us the antidote. If we'll just take the antidote and consider ourselves as least and consider your purposes in loving all the saints greatly, let us be like you. Let us be, Father, like your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's sacrificed himself as the least, that we might become great before you. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name.